The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. It is great to see you kids coming up front. Come on down. Jordan is waiting for you here. My name is Patty Sauls, and it is my privilege to get to read scripture today. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 2, verses 11 through 22. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day, especially to the mother who just read to us for the second time today. Happens to be my favorite mother, biased. Uh, And uh, it's good to be with you all. And uh, speaking of mothers, the story as given to us of the life of Moses began last week with some trauma around uh, his entry into the world and also two mothers. There was his biological mother who, because of the murderous genocidal decree of a tyrant, Pharaoh, uh, releases him, uh, hides him in the reeds by the Nile River in hopes that someone, somehow, some way will come and rescue him because Pharaoh is coming to her house to destroy her son as he is every other newborn Hebrew son. The second mother, as you might remember from last week, is his adoptive mother who, ironically, is the same tyrant's daughter, the daughter of Pharaoh, who comes in and renounces the decree that her father has pronounced over the land to kill all the Hebrew boys and adopts the young baby Moses. And for the next 40 years, he's brought up in Pharaoh's household, 
under the mothering of Pharaoh's daughter. Now he's raised to believe, just as she was, that Hebrews, like himself, are generally speaking subservient and also discardable. They were the slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt. But you might remember from last week when Moses' daughter saw the sight and heard the sound of the cry of this little baby Hebrew boy, her heart was melted and she took him in. So now in this passage, we have fast forwarded 40 years. Moses, according to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, at this point in time, is 40 years old, and a lot like Pharaoh's daughter, we see him with a soft spot in his heart toward the distress and trauma of the Hebrew people. It says that he looks for them, he notices their pain, and then he steps in as their protector. But what we quickly, quickly learn is that even though you can take the boy out of Egypt, it takes some time to take the Egypt out of the boy. Moses begins as a true Egyptian in, in, in just the way that he has been raised, with violence, as, as the way to solve problems. But we'll see that over time he develops into a more tender, pastoral, priestly, shepherding kind of person. So for his first 40 years of life, he's raised in the Egyptian way, including Egyptian warfare, including Egyptian violence, including Egyptian discrimination against the Hebrew people. It takes time for him to be humbled, to become the man that he's meant to be, who will later shepherd and lead the people of Israel out from the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. So there are three things that need to happen to Moses over time in order for him to become that deliverer. One, he needs to learn to put love in front of luxury. Second, he needs to learn to put peace in front of discord. And then finally, he needs to learn to put gradual growth in front of instant perfection. So let's talk first about love over luxury. <clears throat> In verse 11, it says that when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Speaking of the Hebrews, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. An Egyptian beating one of his people. So in all likelihood, this was a slave master beating his own Hebrew slave. And... and if you go back to the original language, when it says that the Egyptian is beating a Hebrew, one of his people, the literal translation should be that he's beating one of his brothers. And so even though he's been raised as if he were an Egyptian, Moses still has this sense of identity and solidarity and deep visceral connection to the Hebrew people. It's a very interesting way that he takes sides. It says that he, he actually defends the Hebrew against the Egyptian. Now, this is a man who was raised in the wealth, the opulence, and the power of a young royal Egyptian. And, and we're left wondering, because he defends the Hebrew instead of siding with the Egyptian in this first fight or this first conflict, why? 
Was it the influence of Pharaoh's daughter, his adoptive mother, who, you know, as, as is often the case, if somebody grows up in an abusive, tyrannical, aggressive home, the image of God in them prompts them to rebel against that by becoming a more tender, compassionate, advocate kind of person sometimes. Maybe he learned this kind of resistance to the tyranny of Pharaoh from his adoptive mother, Pharaoh's daughter. Or maybe he had an Ecclesiastes experience. If, if, if you remember the book of Ecclesiastes, we preached through that some time ago. This is a wealthy man. Like Moses, he has all kinds of advantages. He has the power of a king. He has the wealth of a sheik. And he has the possessions of a small country. And he's not happy. And he has this existential crisis somewhere in mid to later life, as many affluent people do. And he asks himself the question, is there more than this? There's got to be more. And, and he makes a declaration about all that he's accumulated. And he, and he says all the power, all of the, the wealth, all of the possessions is like vapor. It's like vanity. It's like trying to hold on to smoke, to keep smoke contained inside your hands. It's just going to leak out. Just like joy in wealth, power, and privilege leaks out. The closing statement of Ecclesiastes is this. The end of the matter is fear God and keep his commandments. That's the sum of everything. Jesus said something similar when he says, that the sum of the entire law of God is to love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what we find happening with Moses here in midlife. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and following, recounting this story of Moses, it says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing instead to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. In other words, he felt himself to be more wealthy as a sufferer in Christ than he would have ever felt himself to be wealthy as a dominator in the house of Pharaoh. Here is one sign that we see in the life of Moses, and it's all throughout the Bible, and it's all throughout human history and human experience. One sign that God has taken you into his heart is that you have begun to take two kinds of people into your own heart. One is the weak, and the other is all of God's people. So first, the weak. I mean, this is, this is what triggers Moses to step into three conflicts. He, he, he runs to the defense of the weak in each and every instance. You know, there's this famous anecdote about Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi, who was a Hindu. He was not a Christian, but, but he said he got the, the inspiration of his mercy ethic, his compassion ethic, his humanitarian ethic from what he learned in the Gospels about Jesus Christ. And one time an interviewer asked Gandhi 
why is it that you insist on riding the third class train car when you ride a train? Why do you ride in third class? You're a global leader. You, you know rulers and leaders and kings and queens of nations. And you ride third class. Why is that? And, and Gandhi's answer was, because there is no fourth class car. Gandhi is saying that there's a certain identity based on the example, at least, of Jesus Christ that he feels morally compelled to have with those who are weak. That's what's happening with Moses. Even though he's raised in a pagan home of Pharaoh of Egypt. But, but there's another thing that, 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 that's the true sign and the deepest sign that God has taken Moses into his heart and that's that Moses takes the people of God into his heart. He develops an affection for a group of people who apart from God and their shared connection with the Lord, he would have no earthly reason to claim as his brothers or as his sisters. Philip Ryken says this, by joining Israel's civil rights movement, Moses cuts ties with Egyptian elites. One modern way to put this is, to join the movement of Jesus Christ, every follower of Jesus Christ has to cut ties with worldliness with a temporary home, in order to be part of God's permanent, everlasting home. There's this draw, there's this, this thing that happens. You actually start to desire church. You start to desire the people of God with all of their imperfections, with all of their weaknesses, with all of their, their, their mixed history, yet you know, as Moses knew about these Hebrews, who were weak and, and, we'll get to this in a minute, insulting to him. And, and yet there was this insatiable draw to belong and to help others belong because of a shared connection to the God who loved them. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, Welch preacher, uh, before he became a minister, he was an elite physician. He would have been in the kinds of circles of those who found healthcare companies in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, he was at the top of the org chart uh, in terms of the, the medical community, the healthcare community of his time. And he ran with an elite group of physicians, and then he experienced a call into the Christian ministry, went to seminary, became a preacher. The first assignment he took was as lead pastor on the shore of Wales to a blue-collar uh, fisherman's and fisherwoman's community. And a reporter once asked him, do you ever regret leaving the elite life that you had in order to serve and be in community among the weak and the poor and those that society doesn't really notice much at all? And Lloyd-Jones bowed up a little bit. And, and he said, let me be clear with you. I gave up nothing, and I gained everything. It sounds a lot like the description of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, 
where according to Moses, he, he gave up nothing, but he gained everything. It was like the, the Duke of Windsor when he, he married an American commoner and lost the right to be first in line to become king as a result of his choice of a spouse. And people all over the place were questioning his choice. And, and he said, look, you don't know her like I know her. And, and there's this similar thing going on with Moses. You don't know the people of God like I know the people of God. They're worth leaving everything to be identified with. And we have proof in retrospect that, that they actually are worth leaving everything. Jesus left glory. Jesus left the opulence of, of the wealth of heaven and glory in order to secure and be with his own bride, the church, the people of God. Do you love church? That's a, it's a great sign. If the answer is yes, that yes, I love church, especially because of the people there with all of their weakness and all of their glory. If you've come to the point where you've taken the people of God into your heart, it's a good sign that God has taken you into his. The people of God become your people more than anybody else are your people. In the 27th Psalm, you know, David prays, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and, and gaze upon him in his temple, in his temple, with his people. His worship of God, his connection to God is not disconnected with his connection from his connection with the people of God. Psalm 84, very similar. Better to be a doorkeeper, in other words, to be on the periphery. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents or the inner ring of the world outside of God. At some point, every person, then and now, has to claim an identity. In the American West, for many of us, our work is the identity that we claim. I am my work. I am an artist. I am in finance. I am an entrepreneur. I am a mother. Others among us claim an identity in the nation that they're part of. I am an American. I am a Democrat or a Republican. I am this gender. I am this sexuality. I am this race. I am from this family of origin. I am from this income bracket or this zip code. You may be those things, but none of those can withstand the burden of being your I am statement. I am a child of God. That is the Christian's only legitimate identity statement. I am the child of God, and therefore, like Moses, I am brother or I am sister to all the people of God, including the slaves and including the affluent, wealthy, opulent believers like Moses himself. They are my beloved, and I am theirs. And God is our beloved, and he is ours. But there's a cost to this. Because to say that I am a child of God, that I am, as Moses has described, a friend of God before I'm anything else. Before my last name is Saul's, I am a child of God. There's a cost to that. Because to claim that identity and live into that identity, you have to leave every other home. Just as Moses left 
a very comfortable, very affluent, very prosperous, with all kinds of networks and all kinds of advantages and all kinds of opportunities that most people spend their whole lives trying to get there, and he had it in puberty. He had to leave that as an identity and make his identity among the shepherds and the priests and the vulnerable. Jesus put it this way, Who does not, whoever does not hate his own father and mother cannot be my disciple. Happy Mother's Day on that one. Put that on your Mother's Day card. Whoever doesn't hate their father and mother can't be my disciple. You know that Jesus was speaking in relative terms. You know that Jesus was the best son who ever lived. He's even taking care of his mom while he dies on the cross. Woman, here is the man who's going to take care of you. Man, you better, after all I've done for you, now it's time for you to do for me by taking care of my mother. He was never a bad son. He was never neglectful. He never abandoned his mom. He was the best son who ever lived. He's talking about relative love here when he uses the word hate. He says, you know, once my love gets into you, once you understand what it means that I have claimed you as my child and all of the benefits and all of the beauty and goodness that comes from that, your love in response to me will seem like hatred when compared to your love for anything else. But the beauty is there, if you love him more than you love your mother and father, you're actually going to be a better son or daughter to your mother and or daughter. If you love him more than you love your spouse, you're actually going to be a better spouse to them than you would if you put them before you put him. If you love him more than you love your work, you're actually going to be a better boss, better employee, better colleague than you would otherwise. Jesus has this wonderful way of, of giving things back tenfold to the things that we let go. And that's what happens with Moses. But first, let's go to the second value that he needs to lean into in order to leave Egypt for a new home. Peace over discord. You know, notice here that Moses intervenes in three different conflicts. He starts with the conflict between the Egyptian and the Hebrew, and, and he just uses the Egyptian tactics that he was brought up in. He's like, I don't like what this slave master's doing to this Hebrew, so I'm going to kill him and I'm going to bury him. And he thought he was burying the story of what he'd done by burying the Egyptian. He thought that he was hiding it from everybody, but then he enters into another conflict when two Hebrews are fighting each other, and the one who is in the wrong, he says to the one who's in the wrong, why are you striking your companion like that? Why aren't you treating him like a brother? And, and, and this guy's like, really? It's been 40 years, dude. Like, where have you been? All of a sudden, 40 years later, like you're the big defender of vulnerable Hebrews? Where have you been all of your life and all of our lives? Mr. Pharaoh's house, Mr. Money, Mr. Privilege, Mr. Power, Mr. Advocate. Where have you been all this time? We've been suffering 400 years. You've had 40 years to respond and you haven't. And all of a sudden now you're like the advocate. Who has made you prince and judge over us? The man asks. He's humbled by this because the man also says, are you going to kill me too? So he realizes that his story, 
his murder story is actually public. Somehow it's hit cable news. And he's on the hook, and he knows that because he chose an Egyptian over a Jew, that Pharaoh is going to kill him. And so he becomes a refugee. He runs. He flees. And out in the wilderness, in obscurity, on the run from Pharaoh, he sits down by a well. And some women show up. It's seven daughters of the same man. And they're going to the well to get water so that they can water their father's animals. And along come some shepherds and they harass the women. And it says that Moses stood up and saved them. The chivalrous, valiant protector. One man, using the Egyptian warfare tactics, no doubt, that he was taught growing up, to drive away a plurality of shepherds in protection of these women. But he doesn't just protect them, he also serves them by watering the animals himself. He's grown from a violent man to a rejected man to a tender man. It's a process. Moses seems at this point to have the Fred Rogers Syndrome. You remember Mr. Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Presbyterian minister. We like to claim him like we like to claim, you know, Tim Keller and Francis Schaeffer and Cheryl Crow. He was a Presbyterian minister and a fierce defender of vulnerable children. Many people don't know that, that Fred Rogers fought very hard for children before the U.S. Senate when funding for the public broadcasting system and children's shows was threatened. He fought and he won. His concern was that there were too many children out there facing trauma every day at home from abuse, neglect, harsh words, harsh, harsh treatment, and also trauma at school from bullying and in the neighborhood from the same. And Fred Rogers believed that, that children need a counter voice to this trauma every single day to tell kids you matter, you're loved, you're seen, please won't you be my neighbor. I love you and I like you. What was the fuel that drove him? It was his own experience as a child of having been bullied. They called him Fat Fred. If you could imagine Mr. Rogers being overweight. They called his peers, mercilessly ridiculed him for being overweight. They called him Fat Fred, and nobody defended him. And he made a vow to himself, I will never, as far as it depends on me, no child in my presence will ever have to feel that way for long. And that's what drove his vision for his life. Moses was also a bully victim as a child. They wanted to murder kids like him. Moses was deprived of childhood friends because of Pharaoh's violent decree that took their lives. And so he becomes an anti-bully. That's what Christianity has been, at least in part, at its very best over the centuries, is an anti-bullying movement. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about how Christianity is a fighting religion. It fights for the weak. It fights for the vulnerable, just like Moses does. Just like Bonhoeffer and Corrie ten Boom did when they fought for the safety of the Jews when, when Hitler had decreed that all the Jews be killed. Just like Wilberforce fought for the emancipation of slaves 
in, in England before Parliament and won. Just like today, women like Christine Kane fight for young women and girls who are trafficked by the evils of the sex trade globally. Just like women today, like Anne Voskamp, fight in the name of Christ for Muslim refugees who are vulnerable, who have lost their homes, and who are subject to violence to the tune of 16 million or more from Syria alone. Just like the many city groups at Christ Pres are active in uplifting and leaning in with and seeking community with and seeking advocacy for what Nicholas Walterstorff referred to as the quartet of the vulnerable from Zechariah 7, where it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, do not oppress the widow. Here's the quartet the widow or vulnerable women, the fatherless or vulnerable children, the foreigner or vulnerable immigrants and refugees, and the poor, vulnerable everybody else. And at the center of this kind of care and advocacy and compassion, at the center of this anti-bullying movement is Jesus. I mentioned the, the speech that Stephen, the first recorded Christian martyr, gave in Acts chapter 7 as none other than Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, presided over his violent, brutal death before Saul of Tarsus became a follower of Christ. And it says that as he was dying, as he was being mercilessly bullied, he, he was given a vision of Jesus at the right hand of God standing up. Just like it says here that Moses stood up when the shepherds started harassing the women. That's what Christians do. They stand up for the weak by standing against the aggressor. Peace over discord. It's a fight. Moses was eager to be a fighter on behalf of others, rather than to just self-protect, to do the, the Farquad thing. Remember Lord Farquad from Shrek? He sends out a bunch of men on a dangerous mission, and he says, some of you will die, but that's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make. <laughs> Moses is the opposite. If I don't sacrifice, if I don't risk my own life and limb, other people are going to die, and so game on. Put me in, coach. Peace over discord. Finally, gradual growth over instant perfection. Moses becomes the man that Moses becomes over time. Remember, 40 years in Pharaoh's house learning the ins and outs of Egypt because God, unknown to Moses at this time, is preparing Moses to defeat Pharaoh and deliver Egypt from Pharaoh eventually. So he knows his enemy. God has given him 40 years to know his enemy, and now the next 40 years he puts him into the home of these seven women and their father, Raul, who is also referred to as Jethro in the scriptures, who is a priest and a shepherd, which is what Moses is going to need to be between ages 80 and 120 when he leads Israel out and then shepherds them in the wilderness. And so he has 40 more years being brought in, taught, mentored by the man who becomes his father-in-law. It says here that he gave one of his daughters, Zipporah, to Moses. 
and then they had a child together. But you got to get the Egypt out of you before you can lead the people out of Egypt. You've got to listen to that guy who said God is dead, Frederick Nietzsche, who wisely also said, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he doesn't become a monster. As a monster, he killed the Egyptian. And over time, that monster is gradually excommunicated from his heart and and replaced with a shepherd. But it takes 40 more years. He's taken in by the women's father. And then for the next 40 years, Moses has to undergo downward mobility in his career and lifestyle in order to gain upward mobility in his character and in his ability to lead. He's led into obscurity for the next 40 years of his life. He learns the trade of shepherd. First, you need to learn to tend to sheep so that that you can then tend to an entire nation of people who will bite you. And yet you need to love them and intercede for them and be a mediator for them before their God in their distress. And also to be a priest. God also makes him a husband to Zipporah. Forty years of, 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 of serving one person every single day. Instead of just doing these one-off things to come into the defense of the week and you know these special occasions where you get to be the hero, every single day, this is your new heroism, quietly and invisibly serve one woman every single day. And then God gives him a child. No better preparation for an entire nation that's going to grumble at you every single day in the wilderness than to give you a little grumbler. It's one of the things that children do. You don't have to teach them. I don't know a single parent who mentored their children to grumble. I've never met a single parent who said, my children don't ever grumble. You know, C.S. Lewis famously said that hell begins with a grumbling mood. And so part of Moses' mission in the wilderness will be to keep the people of Israel out of hell. To intercede for them when God says, I'm had enough. And Moses says, no, no, no. And God says, I know. I just wanted to engage you with the heart that's in me as well. Moses will need patience because God is actually calling him to be the priest and judge over Israel. That's who called him to be priest and judge. The priest and judge. But I've got to prepare you, and you're going to need 40 more years of seminary. He needs to be prepared to love the unlovely so that he can stand up and save an entire nation, not just seven women. Does it sound familiar? The New Testament tells us about a prophet who is greater than Moses, and that prophet, of course, is Jesus whom we are also told that though he was rich, he became poor. He chose to become poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. We might get to live in the king's house. He, Jesus, was appointed priest and judge over us by his father. And he's ever so patient with our grumbling. He's ever so patient with our resistance. 
and with our selfishness. And he always intercedes with the Father on our behalf, on the basis of what he has done for us. Oh, Father, though they deserve condemnation, they will never receive it, remember? Because I took it for them, because I stood in their place, because I took the hit, because I was the one who was killed and buried into the ground by their violence and by your decision to forsake me to the cross that they might be rescued, that, that you and I and the Holy Spirit might stand to save them. Remember? Yes, of course you remember. The only thing you forget is their sin. The only thing you forget, Father, is their grumbling and their rebellion and their selfishness. You forget it because you remember what I have done for them. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, the book of Hebrews tells us. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to hoard the eternal pleasures of heaven. Jesus never gained the support of a father-in-law, having never been married to a woman himself. Not only this, he lost the support of his father on the cross. Because for the father to turn his face toward us, he had to turn his face away from Christ. For the joy set before him, and we are that joy, and we forever will be that joy, which is a miracle in and of itself, that he would come to our rescue like that. Because Jesus endured for us all, we now have every reason to endure for him and also for one another's sake. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, who has rescued us out of the river, who has rescued us out of the mighty grip of every oppressor, of every person, place, and thing that holds us down, that resembles Pharaoh in our lives. He endured all that so that we can endure and not only endure, but delight in life among the people of God. Home with a capital H. All the people of God, those that we like, those that we don't like, those that we're drawn to, those that we're not drawn to, those who like us, those who don't like us. That's what a family is. He's given us all the resources to live well in light of our wonderfully dysfunctional, destined for glory, family of God called the church. You're here, so I know you're in. So let's rejoice in that by preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you chose love over luxury, that you chose peace over discord, that you set the path for our gradual growth rather than demanding instant perfection from us. We give you thanks for this. And we give you thanks for this feast, this holiday meal that you serve us every single week from your tender heart, even here on Mother's Day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, can I invite you to stand and we will read together part of our confession part of the historic confession that we lean on from the Westminster Divines. And this is essentially a statement that will hopefully help trigger our hearts to run away from violence toward being people of peace, just as Moses was compelled to do by his God. So let's follow what's on the screen. What are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. 
The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have not lived up to these things that have just passed through our lips to your ears. We thank you, Jesus, for stepping in and being the shepherd and being the priest and being the mediator that causes the Father to turn his face toward us in spite of ourselves because of you. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> 